When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. On this week's episode, we're discussing the Pandora Papers with economist Jeffrey Sachs. Here's Razia Iqbal with more. We're talking today about, among other things, money. A lot of it. Money which once again exposes the disparities of wealth in the world and how the rich and powerful are able to hide that wealth by avoiding paying tax. It's all legal, but is it ethical and should it happen? 12 million documents made public by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists dubbed the Pandora Papers expose the wealth and influence of politicians, world leaders and billionaires. The Pandora Papers shine a spotlight on the shadowy world of economic privilege, offshore accounts and tax loopholes. Jeffrey Sachs, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, is an economist who has spent his career looking at strategies that show governments how to better direct where big money goes. His work ranges from alleviating global poverty to using economics to confront the climate crisis. The Economist magazine ranks Jeffrey Sachs as one of the three most influential living economists. Hello, Professor Sachs. Good to be with you. Let's start with the Pandora Papers. They are different in scope to the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers. Just outline for us what has struck you with with this latest cache of documents being revealed. We uh, saw vividly in this new dump of files uh, what what we've known, but uh, to see it uh, so starkly uh, is shocking. How much vast wealth moves in secret accounts uh, in the tax havens uh, in a system that is designed exactly for this purpose. Uh, This is not uh, some... uh, hidden loophole uh, ridden system. This is the system uh, that the world has put together. The most uh, powerful governments in the world, the uh, largest law firms uh, and most powerful law firms in the world have created a system where the super rich who are becoming richer 
all the time uh, and uh, just breaking free of Earth's uh, gravity, uh, one, one could say both literally and, and figuratively, have mechanisms to avoid and I would add evade taxes. Uh, you mentioned in the introduction that uh, it may be legal, but it's awful. But a lot of it is illegal as well. A lot of it is a direct uh, violation of laws. Uh, it's uh, profits on illicit kinds of businesses. It is uh, evasion of tax systems. It is money from bribery. There's a lot going on here that, uh, of course, has to be parsed in, in detail over time. There are a lot of world leaders that were mentioned in this. That's not altogether surprising. Uh, there are a lot of big names, a lot of the billionaires uh, on uh, the annual uh, rankings of billionaires uh, show up in these accounts. That's not surprising as well. It is fundamentally disappointing, however, uh, disappointing for our world because what this uh, money represents is lost revenues in taxes that could be used to end poverty and to alleviate suffering. Uh, and it is uh, the impunity of the super rich uh, beyond everything else that is the most deeply troubling. We are a rich world uh, and these uh, papers, uh, these files uh, show that once again. And yet we have uh, extreme suffering of poverty and deprivation. It would be so easy to alleviate that suffering. We don't do it. Our governments wring their hands saying we don't have the budgets to do it. But of course, they let the super rich go tax free, uh, knowingly and by design, and then say we can't help the poor. Let's talk about the, the, the metrics here, because the, by one metric, the International Monetary Fund says that $600 billion in tax is lost to governments as a result of these tax loopholes and, and your contending tax evasion, which is illegal, as well as tax avoidance, which, which is, which is legal. I mean, I, I, I wonder about uh, the, the specifics of, say, for example, King Abdullah of Jordan. You know, Jordan is a country that is deeply dependent on outside uh, aid. The United States gives Jordan $1.5 billion in, in aid every year. And while the royal family says, no, 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 this isn't been public money and treasury money has not been used for the purchase of the big fancy mansions that the, the king has bought, which these documents reveal. But of course, it does show into sharp, throw into sharp relief the contrast between the suffering of the Jordanians, uh, ordinary Jordanians, and the way in which the king has chosen to live. We need uh, transparency in the world. Uh, the details of uh, Jordanian law or the uh, accounts uh, of uh, the Jordanian royals, I don't know. But what I do know is that there was uh, new information that a lot of people understandably find shocking in uh, what uh, they learned uh, in the specifics uh, in the case you mentioned, but, but of uh, leaders from all parts of the world. We don't have transparency. We don't have an idea of who is moving what money because the entire system that is exposed in the Pandora files is of shell corporations. The purpose is not only tax avoidance or tax evasion, but it is anonymity to be able to do it without any scrutiny. And this is absolutely what I see every day in 
work in developing countries when an environmental disaster occurs or when an illegal transaction occurs, it is typically in uh, the name of a shell company in Bermuda or in the British Virgin Islands. Nobody knows who it is. Uh, it's got some phony name. Uh, there are no known actors around it. And this is exactly the wall of anonymity, of impenetrability that make it impossible to hold uh, powerful people to account. And this is uh, one of the most important factors of our world today, the impunity of the rich and powerful. You have access to governments all the time. You speak to developing uh, country governments as well as developed uh, country governments. And, and it, it is precisely those people who can do something about this who don't, because as you're outlining, they have a vested interest in maintaining it. How much of the conversations that you have, I mean, give us an example of how you may have said to a government, look, you can do something about this and, and here's how. In a lot of developing countries, uh, they just feel completely victimized because the companies operating there uh, somehow don't have any income in those countries. So they've used transfer payments. They've used other mechanisms to suck out all of the profits that normally would be uh, shown in the income statements. And those profits show up again in Bermuda or the British Virgin Islands or the Bahamas or other tax havens. So the poor countries, the finance ministers that I deal with are desperately trying to mobilize a budget to keep kids in school or to provide emergency health care or basic infrastructure. Uh, they feel victimized by that. They have mining sectors or they have oil and gas companies or they have other multinational companies seemingly doing just fine and reporting almost no income. This is one piece of it. When you go to my country, the United States, the abuse and impunity is the system. Right now, we're in an important moment when President Biden and Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen are trying to clean up things. They're trying to negotiate a minimum corporate tax. They're trying to negotiate ways to stop the kinds of abuses that are underway. They're trying to stop the tax havens. They're trying to enforce the U.S. tax code. The Treasury has noted that it loses hundreds of billions of dollars each year just in the U.S. to outright evasion, mostly from the richest taxpayers. You know what the Republicans have said to this? They said it's un-American to intrude, uh, to uh, have these audits and so forth. They're not going to do that. They said it's un-American to insist that multinational companies with profits pay a minimum tax. They are fighting every step of the way. To my mind, the U.S. became a plutocracy over the last 40 years, a political system ruled by money. One can watch how that happened. It was a deliberate process of takeover. Indeed, in 2006, Warren Buffett, one of the richest people in the world, said, yes, there is a class war, but it's not the poor against the rich. The rich are waging war on the poor. And he said, and they're winning. And this has really been the case for 40 years in the United States since Ronald Reagan 
came to the presidency in January 20th, 1981, a pivotal moment when the tax cuts and the abuses and the tax havens soared. They were there beforehand, but the United States redesigned the system as a plutocracy. One of the things, uh, incidentally, that uh, was a notable part of that is that Lewis Powell, who was a corporate lawyer uh, and advised the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, said, we have to defend the American corporations. Then Richard Nixon appointed him as Supreme Court judge. A few years after that, he rendered a ruling that said that when companies spend political funds, that's free speech. It's protected. It can't even be controlled or limited. With that ruling and several that followed it, we opened the floodgates to corruption in the United States, to corporate money, often given secretly for politics, so that our politicians basically uh, uh, became uh, part of a system of mega corporate corruption. And since that time, they've been voting tax cuts for the rich and the powerful. And I think it is very heavily tied to the fact that our election cycles spend more and more money in 2020, about $14 billion, mostly coming from the largest donors. And then uh, the Republican Party to a person and uh, many of the Democrats say, well, we have to keep the tax rates low on the rich and the powerful. You supported Bernie Sanders in that election campaign, and you mentioned Joe Biden and Janet Yellen and the and the challenges that they are currently facing. But the, the tension between economics and, and, and politics is so stark in the instance of tax because President Biden has already had to reduce the amount of corporation tax that he is now fighting for, you know, from 28%, I think, down to just over 26%, which feels... It, you know, and of course, the Republicans are fighting for something even lower than that when it comes to corporation tax. I mean, I, to what extent is it possible to, to, on the one hand, acknowledge that politics gets in the way and the election cycle means that people will make compromises and, and an, a desperate need to clean up the system? I would uh, agree with the word desperate. The United States total tax collection at all levels of government, federal, state and local, comes to about 30% of our national income or our gross domestic product. In Europe, uh, it tends to be 40% or higher. In Northern Europe, more than 45% typically. The difference is civilization. In the United States, we have a deep poverty. We have entrenched poverty. We have low social mobility. We have crumbling infrastructure. Because the rich, oh, they pay for their own infrastructure, thank you, behind their gated communities or in the Hamptons or wherever they happen to be, and they don't pay taxes. And then we hear, again, typically from the Republicans, oh, we can't afford to do more. It's so sad. We have to cut the size of spending. All of the debate in the United States over the so-called reconciliation bill or the $3.5 trillion package, which is quite modest, uh, by the way, in U.S. terms, because the total package, though it has this headline of $3.5 trillion, is over a decade. And when you look at it year by year, it comes out to about 1% 
of the gross domestic product. That's it. That's what we're arguing about. But the rich don't even want to pay 1% of GDP more, even though their share of national income has soared from around 10% of GDP a generation ago to more than 20% of GDP now. Oh, my God. The greed is absolutely startling. The corruption of the political system is absolutely startling. And I think American society and American democracy are really on the line. Well, I mean, how, how much space do you think there is to, to try and shift people's perspectives on this? And I, by that, I mean politicians' perspectives on this, because, you know, the, the election cycle means that everybody is just working towards being reelected or staying in power and so on. To, to, to what extent are you, Jeffrey Sachs, able to persuade politicians that this isn't about altruism. This is about building a society that looks different, that will have a legacy that we might all be proud of. I I wrote a book a decade ago called uh, The Price of Civilization. And the theme of it was that uh, we need to pay taxes to have a, a civilized country, to have a civilized world. And so I've been watching this struggle uh, with the interest, concern and engagement for a long time. I don't know how it's going to go. The plutocracy is deeply dug in. What's fascinating right now is the American people get it. About 70 percent of the American public says raise taxes on the rich and the companies. So we're not seeing the mistake Uh, or uh, the uh, propaganda affecting uh, the public opinion, what we're seeing is a sharp break between what the American people want and what their representatives vote for. And the representatives, so-called, maybe that's a euphemism for what they really are, but the representatives want the campaign finance. They want the privileges. They want the perks. They want the good relations with our powerful corporate lobbies. Many of them leave Congress eventually and take jobs in high paying uh, lobbying firms or as senior vice presidents uh, for external affairs uh, in companies. So this is how the elite operates in the United States. The public doesn't like it, really doesn't like it. And that's why another plank of the Republican Party uh, platform, as it were, is voter suppression. We're in the midst of an intense battle in the United States where states controlled by the Republican Party are absolutely trying to disenfranchise or make it very difficult for poor people to vote because you can't really have a democracy in which there's a high level of participation in which the public overwhelmingly wants higher taxes on the rich and powerful and not have it, something's going to give. Uh, Either democracy will triumph or democracy will go down. Maybe there will still be a a shell of democracy, uh, the formalisms, but there will be so much voter suppression, so much turnoff, so much propaganda and so forth that this uh, uh, process will continue. That's the battle that America is in right now. What's so interesting, of course, Maybe that's the wrong word. One could have stronger words than interesting. But what what is so 
poignant about this and important about the U.S. specific case is the role of the United States in the world. It still is the most powerful nation in the world, though one can see that it's easy to dissipate that power. It is uh, got 800 military bases around the world and 6,000 nuclear warheads. So what happens in the United States matters. And uh, we're really in a class war right now. The rich have been winning, but maybe uh, the tide can turn. That's what we're watching and hoping to see. It's obviously not just in the United States. When you look at the UK government, you know, we're seeing we're in the midst of the government taking away a very small amount of money every week, £20, $35, you know, an uplift in universal credit, which was put in place at the beginning of the pandemic. I just wonder about that in contrast to a corporation like Amazon that pays an absolute minuscule amount compared to the amount of of sales that they have, say, just in the United Kingdom, you know, 492 million pounds in taxes, and the sales have surged to 20.6 billion. I mean, it's that kind of thing that does make, as you are outlining in the United States, you know, ordinary people absolutely gasp, because these, these amounts are eye watering, and it feels so deeply, profoundly iniquitous. And and I wonder what space you think there is for people, you talk about democracy being on the line, for people to, to really make their voices heard that this is where the iniquities in society need to be resolved first. Amazon is, is, is an amazing story. It, it, it is a, a remarkable operation in many ways. But here you have uh, this deep transformation of society, which is taking place with e-commerce. There are probably natural network economies of scale or network externalities, meaning that one company will tend to dominate this space or a small number. It has led to wealth of an individual, of Mr. Bezos, that is completely unprecedented. Talk about eye-watering. Last uh, time I checked in the uh, daily updates of uh, the the wealth of uh, the rich and famous, Mr. Bezos uh, had a personal wealth of $210 billion. Now, uh, you can get by with that, let's say. At the same time, Amazon's work conditions are miserable. Uh, Amazon, moreover, plays our cities and states against each other. If you can imagine this most powerful corporation, uh, this gargantuan, uh, gets tax breaks all over the United States, tax-free, as one city says, oh, come build your warehouse here. We don't have jobs for poor people. They'll they'll work uh, in miserable conditions uh, inside your, uh, uh, your warehouses. And so we have this remarkable phenomenon. The very richest person in the world is getting thrown tax breaks, tax cuts, uh, uh, complete uh, tax holidays, property, uh, infrastructure, all to try to attract Amazon for those jobs at quite uh, miserable conditions. And this probably uh, is important to reflect that Amazon is the most dramatic part of what is changing in our society more generally. With the digital revolution, we are seeing 
giant tech companies that have this kind of network phenomenon at play getting bigger and bigger, more and more powerful, more and more market capitalization, just the big ones, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, and so on. They come to around eight to $10 trillion of market capitalization, depending exactly what is on your list. The owners or founders have mega wealth of a kind never seen before in history, and they don't pay taxes. The companies don't pay taxes. The individuals don't pay taxes. The low-wage workers can't find decent jobs because jobs are being displaced by the technological changes. They're being displaced by the robotics or by the digital artificial intelligence systems. Okay, but then they're not helped. They're not helped with the additional income or in the United States, not even with health care, for God's sake. At least uh, the UK has uh, the National Health Service. The United States doesn't even reach that measure of civility. But the way in which you talk about uh, these handful of these companies, I wonder if you occasionally reflect that actually the de- the democratic structure that the West has engaged in since the Second World War is really just a pretense that in fact it is these companies that that rule the roost over all of us. In the United States and I would say in the UK, we had a period uh, after World War II that really was different in politics. Uh, the beverage report in the UK uh, in the midst of the war said we need to create uh, a fairer society after the war. The National Health Service emerged from that. We had our greatest president in U.S. history, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, with the New Deal and with uh, his uh, remarkable uh, economic bill of rights put forward in 1944, where he said we need economic rights alongside uh, our political and civil rights. The man was magnificent. He died early in 1945. Uh, With uh, his death uh, came uh, the end of that idea. Not the end of the idea, I should say, but the end of that possibility in American politics uh, after that. But the idea actually uh, not only remained, but is enshrined globally in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights which says not only do people have political and civil rights, they have economic, social and cultural rights. And among the economic rights are the right to a decent standard of living, the right to health care, the right to economics, the right to uh, the food to eat and so on. Now, the United States, after Roosevelt, had uh, roughly 30 to 35 years of more or less progressive politics uh, from Roosevelt to Truman to Eisenhower, who was more conservative, but didn't dismantle the system to John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. But that proved to be the the end of uh, America's social democratic era, because after 1968, with the tumult of uh, American cultural life, with the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, and uh, these changes in social ethos, America went into a culture war. 
And then it went into economic war and class war. It, it turns out in retrospect that the real swing of the pendulum occurred with Ronald Reagan's presidency, as I mentioned, because from that point till today, we have been in a conservative mode. And uh, even when we had uh, Democratic presidents, it was very hard to move anything. Bill Clinton really governed from the center to even center right. Uh, President Obama passed one piece of legislation, Obamacare, that one would say is a center-left measure about 40 or 50 years late, the United States started to move towards some sense of universality. But we're not there uh, on access to health coverage. And Joe Biden's trying to move things farther. And we're really in the heat of the battle just now on whether he can muster uh, a tiny majority of votes to say that the rich and the powerful need to be responsible to American society. And uh, the uh, outcome of this is not yet known. Clearly not yet known. I mean, one of the things that you are really well known for is that that you have argued that there are bad governments in the world because of poverty, rather than looking at poverty as the result of bad governance. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that that is, in a, in a nutshell accurate in terms of what you have what you have been working on for, for for decades how is it possible to shift that and i'm and i'm thinking not just about developing countries because we see bad governance in in many countries in the developing world but from everything that you're saying we clearly see bad governments in developed countries too there's an old expression uh, that the fish rots from the head uh, and i think in the international system uh, there's a lot of rot from the leadership of the world. The, I, I'm not a great fan of uh, the British Empire uh, during its imperial heyday. It created a lot of misery around the world, in my view, uh, much more than benefit. When the United States became the imperial hegemon, as uh, it said in political science after World War II, we created a lot of bad governance around the world in the 1950s with Britain. When we were making that transition from the British Empire to the American Empire, of course, the two countries teamed up to overthrow Prime Minister Mossadegh in Iran in 1953. A democratically elected prime minister who had the temerity to think that the oil in Iran belonged to the Iranians when obviously it belonged to the British, uh, to what would become BP. Well, uh, little did Mossadegh know, he just made a naive mistake that the uh, oil under the sand in, in uh, Iran was uh, somehow Iranian, and he was overthrown. And he was replaced by a military a, a police state, basically, uh, under the Shah uh, of Iran. In the United States, when uh, Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala said we should have land reform. Amazingly, United Fruit Company uh, contacted uh, its law firm, uh, which was the law firm of the Dulles brothers. Now, one of the Dulles brothers uh, was John Foster Dulles, uh, the uh, Secretary of State. The other uh, was Alan Dulles uh, of the CIA. And uh, the one brother uh, and the other agreed, well, now Mr. Arbenz has to go. He's a threat to 
the client to United Fruit Company. So he was overthrown. And we look back at the, the horrendous implications of that. I'm involved now trying to help the Democratic Republic of Congo. And people say, well, how did that governance get so bad? Uh, and it's rather amazing to look at it. Of course, the Congo as a state was formed as the personal property of King Leopold II of Belgium. He ran it as a brutal slave colony where millions died at his hands. It got so bad that the Congo was transferred to the Belgian government, which then ran it as a slave colony from uh, around 1908 to 1960. When the Congo gained uh, independence, a visionary and, and a remarkable leader, Patrice Lumumba, became prime minister, enormously popular, great hope for the Congo. Uh, but the mining sector uh, in Katanga province said, well, he's a threat. The United States, in its anti-communist mode, said, well, Lumumba says, I'm not for either side. But for, from the U.S. Uh, ear, that meant he was a communist. So the CIA conspired with local forces to put a bullet through his head. And then the U.S. installed the murderer, the assassin, Mobuto. And so for the next 30 years, uh, you had uh, a dictatorship that was backed by the United States. So when you look at it, it's not only that poverty leads to bad government. It is that rich countries, especially the United States, but also other former colonies manipulate these countries, uh, suck out tax revenues, favor multinational companies, and in the brutal history of American foreign policy, overthrow governments, assassinate leaders, and protect U.S. companies from thoughts of social democracy in the developing world. Uh, this is a long history that needs uh, a deep reading and, 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 and uh, a, a deep, uh, comprehensive view, because I can tell you it's not what we're taught in school. Uh, you really learn that the rich and the powerful write the history and to uncover the truth takes a tremendous effort. There's a new wonderful book uh, written by Susan Williams, a historian uh, based in London called White Malice which talks about the CIA destruction of the early uh, governments of uh, post-colonial Africa. It's an amazing read, and it uh, shows uh, really uh, the, the chronology and uh, the perfidity uh, of American policy in Africa. Then we turn around and say, what's wrong with you? Well, what's wrong with you is uh, what we have done. I would say the same in the Middle East. I would say the same uh, in the countries of Southeast Asia where the U.S. Uh, uh, bombed uh, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam uh, to unbelievable extent. And incidentally, to this day, where the landmines are all over Lao PDR, for example, and the United States does not help clean up exactly the mines and the ordinance that it uh, dropped against the people of that country. So... This is where the real problems of governance come in by those who have the power. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The way in which you outline what America has done in the world, I I wonder to what extent you, Jeffrey Sachs, despairs. I mean, do you despair about the, the, the way in which America projects itself versus the fact that it clearly has not been a force for good in many, many parts of the world? I am trying my, um, I'm, uh, myself as best I can to uh, help contribute to a multipolar world in which we don't have a hegemonic power, in which we don't have the one country that says we run the show, we are the leader. I cringe every time the United States says we are the leader of the free world. I don't care who's saying it. I don't want the United States to lead. I want the United States to cooperate. I want the United States to follow international law. I want to see the UN Charter as our framework for peaceful relations among countries. And I want to see the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which will have its 75th birthday in 2023, be a worldwide, truly universal charter. That's feasible. I don't see why we have to despair over that. I do worry, however, uh, that this is not the vision in the American political class. Uh, That's basically true throughout most of uh, American high level politics. The idea is very deeply ingrained that the world's only safe if the United States is leading it. This is not a correct view. The world is safe if we are all abiding by international law. That's the only way that the world can be safe. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, that you wear lots of different hats and, and the, the, the context in which we're speaking all underpins the profound existential crisis that we are facing in terms of, of climate change. And, and I, I, because everything that you're saying of course, will be magnified in the context of how we manage the climate crisis. And and the summit in the United Kingdom at the end of 2021 will be an inflection point which shows us the extent to which the cooperation that you're talking about is possible. How do you how do you view that in the context of everything that you've said about the way corporations function, the importance of our dependence on on fossil fuels continues, corporations not wanting to give way, the power of the the, the gas and the oil and the coal lobby being one of the most powerful lobbies in, in, in the United States? How do you reflect on what is possible in the context of the climate crisis? I think uh We should start with the fact that uh, in 1992, uh, 
the world's government signed the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. We are 29 years later and we have not taken decisive action. That's the first point. Second point, the world has already warmed to more than 1.2 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial level. We are warmer than in any significant stretch of time on the planet of the last 100,000 years, certainly of any decadal uh, average, uh, or I say most likely of any decadal average of the last 10,000 years, our period of civilization. All of the evidence is that we are racing to an out of control spiral if we do not stop the emission of greenhouse gases. So that's the starting point. Second, the Paris Climate Agreement set a target to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius. We're at the final moment where that's even a feasible point. Third, all of the uh, science says in order to accomplish that, we must go to net zero emissions no later than mid-century and to negative emissions after that. And so we have a clear guardrail of what's needed. Fourth, it's possible to do that. And a very important report by the International Energy Agency called Net Zero by 2050 shows a global roadmap at low incremental financial costs, basically no incremental costs compared to a business as usual trajectory for moving to a zero carbon global energy system. That's very good news. This is possible. This is feasible. Now, another bit of good news is that 70 to 80 percent of the world's emitting countries uh, and uh, of the countries of 70 or 80 percent of emissions, I should say uh, more precisely, are committed to getting to net zero. China by 2060, that should move forward to 2050. They can do it. And uh, I'm strongly urging that they move forward. But we've had a tremendous move in the last couple of years to the realization that net zero by 2050 is feasible and necessary and countries are committing to it. So like so many other battles, we're in the midst of this right now. In Glasgow at COP26, I think the, the single most important thing that can be accomplished is a, an agreement that is worldwide that we are going to reach net zero by mid-century. And that should be the outcome of COP26. A subsidiary but extremely important part of COP26 is that there should be financing for all countries in the world on appropriate terms to finance that transformation. This is a missing piece. Again, the rich countries promised things that they never delivered. They promised what's pretty meager, $100 billion a year of official financing, even including loans, and they can't come up with that. That's nothing in the scheme of a $100 trillion world economy. And yet they have not done it yet. That is a lack of seriousness that is really disgusting. But these are the two main outcomes that are needed at COP26. 
the world is going to net zero and it's going to be financed. But we already know that as we approach that summit, that there are still many, many countries who have not signed up to this and all 192 countries have to sign up to it. And on top of that, there is, of course, China and India. I wonder to what extent you understand the view of those countries, which is that, you know, we are in the middle of our industrial revolution and you've had yours and you can't stop us. And and while China is making positive noises about not financing coal-fired power stations outside of China, there is no commitment to do so inside China. And, and so that continues to be a battle, which of course plays itself out in the context of geopolitics, the kind of the real rivalry between Washington and Beijing? Well, China has committed uh, to uh, peak in the coal in the middle of this decade and to reach net zero by 2060. That's an important commitment. It's not good enough. Uh, China can do better and it should move the commitment forward to 2050. And when I work with the Chinese scholars on this, uh, we agree that that is feasible. Uh, It is feasible. China has a lot of technology. It's very good at scaled operations. It could achieve what it has announced no later than 2060 by no later than 2050. India has not made such a commitment yet, which is uh, sad. And, uh, of course, profoundly ironic as well, because there are few places on the planet as vulnerable to what is happening uh, than India. We're already seeing in India routinely days of 40 degrees Celsius, and we're seeing days of 50 degrees Celsius. We're seeing unlivable conditions uh, in a powerful science fiction view of the climate uh, change in the future that was written last year, the uh, Ministry of the Future, about the, the, the global politics of climate change. It is in India where the first mega death wave occurs in the midst of a heat wave that's compounded by a nationwide power failure. Uh, and uh, in this story, uh, which is based on possibilities that are all too real and all too harrowing, India proves itself to be the most vulnerable uh, place uh, and the one that suffers uh, this terrible outcome. Now, what India is saying is, well, we could do more, but we're not seeing the help. We need technology transfer. We need finance. That part is fair enough. But I would like to see Prime Minister Modi stand up and say, we need the whole world to get to net zero. Otherwise, India is in (laughs) desperate straits. We will do our part, but what we can do depends on what we are helped to do. Now, that's a coherent message. That has not come clearly right now. And, and, and just to say on the geopolitics, if I might, it's not that the climate divisions are hardening the geopolitics. It's the opposite. When the U.S. has its harsh, wrongheaded dangerous view that China's a threat to U.S. primacy, it were, in my view, the U.S. should not aim for primacy of any kind. It should aim for cooperation. Then China says, well, if we are being so harshly hit, how can we take added risks 
uh, of uh, the climate and energy transition. Now, we've seen in recent days some softening of the rhetoric from the United States. Thank goodness there was an important meeting of the U.S. National Security Advisor and his counterpart in Switzerland. There was a readout of a recent call of President Biden and President Xi Jinping that all looked to toning down what became very harsh and very dangerous words. And that toning down of this view is so important because not only do we not want flashpoints and God forbid war, but we absolutely need the cooperation on the climate change. We do not need a world of alliances, by the way. I'm absolutely against this new AUKUS, uh, the, the US, UK, Australia. Stop the alliances aim for cooperation. In in the context of everything that you have said, we've talked about the plutocracy, we've talked about short-termism in politics and the culture that, that uh, forces politicians or they feel they are forced to focus just on on the, the five-year term or four-year terms in, in, in some instances and so on. I just wonder, I just wonder where, as an economist, you find space for hope because you in everything that you've said you you look for it you look for shifts in changes in attitudes and so on are you are you a hopeful economist i'm in rome uh, this month at, at the vatican uh, pope francis uh, convened with uh, world religious leaders with patriarch bartholomew with the uh, archbishop welby uh, with the buddhist uh, hindu muslim uh, Shinto leaders to issue a call for climate sanity and climate justice. Uh, the wonderful community San Angidio, which is a worldwide uh, effort uh, of ecumenism, of uh, interreligious uh, dialogue and of peace, uh, brought together the world leaders, also uh, Chancellor Merkel, uh, to say we need an approach that is different from the power politics, the wars, we need global cooperation. There is a yearning for this worldwide. It's real. It is reflected in the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. It is reflected in the Paris Climate Agreement. It is reflected in the 70% of Americans who want to tax the rich so that they can uh, have a more civilized country. Or the big majority of Americans who say we have to move from fossil fuels to renewable energy. In other words, what the people around the world want is normalcy, decency, attention to human values, uh, attention to uh, basic needs of people. What the power politics wants, what the lobbyists want, what the corporates want, what the people uh, of great wealth uh, and impunity want, that's something different right now. That's what we're really talking about. So the question is, can we act on behalf of humanity? It's, it sounds like a cliche, but it's, it's not a cliche. Uh, and uh, I, I think that it's a real possibility and uh, obviously a vital need. I would note also how interesting what's happening in China, where the Chinese government is cracking down on its uh, most powerful and richest tech companies, 
right now. It is uh, cracking down on the addiction of screen time for children. It's cracking down on these cryptocurrencies, which I also regard as a hugely mistaken uh, approach and and, an openness to abuse in the name of uh, what uh, President Xi Jinping has has called uh, common prosperity. Now, I know people will jump up and down. Well, that's authoritarian. That's this. That's that. Uh, That's just the power. Let's let's observe and understand and discuss, because what China's grappling with is also what we're grappling with. We're grappling with vast inequalities of wealth. We're grappling with impunity of power. We're grappling with the transitions to a new digital age. There are so many things we need to discuss together, to work together, and not simply to attack each other, and then to find ways to cooperate together. Maybe if I could just add one more positive point. You know, this summer, the G20 actually agreed on globally coordinated tax reform on minimum corporate taxes, uh, on rebasing the taxes of the biggest multinational companies. I know how hard the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has worked on this. This is something real. This is actually global cooperation for the good. So we should see that not just as glimmers of hope, but as possible pathways forward. But but I also wonder, I mean, I interviewed Archbishop Justin Welby this week about that meeting in the Vatican. And, you know, he he didn't dismiss it entirely. But when I put it to him that the church could do so much more in terms of divesting the amount of money that they have in fossil fuel companies, he said it was better to still stay in with those companies in order to persuade them to invest in green technology and so on, which is exactly the kind of thing that someone like Greta Thunberg will say, no, this is just words. This is just blah, blah, blah. You know, you're not actually committed. And and given that actually we are responsible as this generation for the mess that we are leaving, her generation and her children's generation and so on, it does feel as though there is a chasm of understanding in terms of how quickly things need to happen. Pope Francis was very strong and very clear. We need to move and we need to move now. I had a a bit of a run in with Total yesterday at this big ecumenical meeting because Total still hasn't gotten the message and it is aiming to build a thousand mile, a 1400 kilometer pipeline across absolutely vulnerable, protected regions from Uganda through Tanzania to a port to export more hydrocarbons. Oh my God, have they not been listening? Do they not understand that this is wrong in every possible way? So absolutely, we are seeing the pushback, the rearguard actions, the power of these lobbies. We've also seen, however, uh, the stock market batter Chevron and Exxon, and boy, this is so appropriate. I think we ought to tax them heavily to uh, be able to uh, pay for losses and damages that those companies have knowingly uh, imposed on others. So I think and hope that there's more to come. But there's no doubt 
This is political struggle. There's no doubt about it. This is not everybody just lining up and saying, wonderful. Because even when 70 or 80 percent of uh, uh, Americans line up on that side, passing something through a plutocratic Congress turns out to be quite a difficult thing. We are in absolute struggle right now for a decent future. Uh, And it is in these days, these weeks that this is taking place. Jeffrey Sachs, thank you so much. We could have spoken for another hour. I'm certain of it. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Razia Iqbal. Thanks for listening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.